0: Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today, we're going to be talking about something along the lines of an international affairs issue. So, of course, we have the Alec Senior Director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force, Carla Jones. Thank you so much for dialing into our first ever podcast recorded over Zoom.
1: Thank you, Dan.
0: Thanks, Carla. And Carla uh, grabbed an awesome guest from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University here in Virginia. It's Dr. Wei-Feng Zong. He is a senior research fellow over at Mercatus and studies this issue at length. Uh, Dr. Zong, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for having me. Of course. So right now, China is on the mind of a lot of our listeners. It's you turn the news on and you're probably going to discuss it within a couple minutes. But there's a lot of different expertise out there. What do you think, Dr. Zong, what do you think our listeners should know about China policies in general? And how do you think that helps them to understand your work?
2: Sure. So I think a key thing I would highlight is that although the Chinese economy has been much more open now that you know decades of economic reforms have passed since the late 70s, but the political system and policymaking in China have largely remained very opaque. And the implication of the opacity is that we, one has to get uh, creative when it comes to you know, you know, reading the Chinese tea leaves, so to speak. And that's pretty much the guiding principle of my research. So a large part of my research focuses on trying to predict and analyze Chinese policies by reading the uh, propaganda messages coming up from the Chinese government. And it also, uh, in part, was driven by my life experience because I was born in China. So growing up, I remember having this fascination because I was exposed to a lot of propaganda, as you can imagine. Sure. And I was at some point wondering, you know, why would anybody with a reasonable mind believe in this sort of thing? Because I didn't believe that, uh, that sort of thing. But it's, it very quickly occurred to me that that's pretty much all the Chinese people because propaganda is really a very effective tool in terms of changing public opinion and moving public policy the way the government desires. And so that gave me the idea from very early on that if there's a way to analyze propaganda, one may be able to pick the mind you know, uh, to figure out what's going on behind the mind of the Chinese government. Now, that issue is going to be more important now that, because for two reasons. One is that the Chinese political system is very very resilient. Very little has changed since the opening up of the economy, even including joining the WTO. Right? So the, the country has remained largely authoritarian, if not more. And that, what the implication of that resilience of the political system is that as the Chinese economic power and the global influence grows, issues within the country will have more impact in to the rest of the world, right? If we think about the trade negotiations last year with the U.S., which was later complicated by the protests in Hong Kong, uh, triggering the issue of people wondering whether the Chinese military would crack down on them. And now that we have this COVID-19 pandemic, pulling everybody uh, working at home as we speak. And so things like this are going to be more and more important. And getting to understand the Chinese system better would be a natural first step.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. And uh, it's really tough to understand what really is the state of play, right? I mean, what is, what is not. And that's really what is at the core of your policy change index. It sounds like, to me, it sounds really important, um, especially when we think about uh, China's response to COVID-19. I'm hearing conflicting accounts. I, I'm sure our listeners are hearing conflicting accounts from various different outlets and, and mediums. Can you give us your take, maybe based on your, your policy change index um, and that research, can you give us your take on how China first reacted to the COVID-19 crisis?
2: Sure. I was hearing a lot of uh, conflicting accounts on the Chinese numbers too as everybody else, and that really gets back to the opacity the point of uh, the issue about being uh, the political system being opaque and whether it's uh, about the source of the outbreak or you know the severity and how many people were infected really or how many did die so I wonder about that every day now the question um, when it gets to understanding that on a qualitative level I think it's fair to say that many believe that the Chinese government has not been truthful in terms of the severity of the disease. But at a quantitative level, uh, how much truth did it really uh, hide from the rest of the world is much less clear than just a judgment that they are not being truthful, right? And history actually might be able to provide us uh, with some clue, because if we look back at the SARS outbreak starting from late 2002 and lasting until uh, 2004, actually. So now we, we have known a little bit more about the SARS outbreak back then, and we know that the first case was probably discovered in November of 2002, but the state-controlled media in China didn't really start to talk about it until February 2003, which is a quarter later, three months later after the first case. And it seems to be uh, very similar this time because it was likely starting around late November, early December of last year. But the state media also just started to talk about it in late January, uh, closer to the beginning of the Chinese New Year season. And so this historical similarity actually gave us uh, some idea about how to get to know a little bit more about the COVID outbreak by studying the history, like by comparing how they talk about the COVID-19 pandemic versus how they used to talk about SARS outbreak from 17 years ago. So that's actually one of the actively developed, uh, being a project that's under active development by uh, me and my collaborators on the product line of the Policy Change Index.
0: Carla, do you want to jump into the third question? First
1: of all, Dr. Zhang, I wanted to thank you for taking the time with us today. We're thrilled that you're here on the podcast. Um, And I also wanted to thank you for your presentation at the Alex Summit. Back in December, when you spoke to the International Relations Task Force's National Security Subcommittee, yours was possibly one of the most talked about presentations at the entire summit, and ALEC members' interest in China as a strategic challenge has only intensified given the current crisis. Would you mind telling our listeners who might not have been at that subcommittee meeting about your policy change index research, the algorithm, how it works, how it can be used to help America predict China's actions and help us craft a U.S. policy toward China?
2: Sure. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for um, having me at the uh, Alex Summit last year. The pleasures were all mine, exchanging ideas with all the members there. So happy to describe, uh, give an overview of the project. Basically, it is a, um, a set of machine learning program that tries to predict Chinese policies and hopefully other authoritarian regime's policies by analyzing propaganda. We have so far the use cases we have done are about China, including uh, the analysis of whether China would back down on the trade negotiations, whether China would you know, send military over the border to crack down on Hong Kong protesters. And now uh, with this new project of how much were the Chinese government officials not telling in terms of the coronavirus outbreak. But in the future, we are also hoping to extend the applications to other authoritarian regimes by the same principle that analyzing propaganda may be able to tell us their future policies. The the reason that could possibly work is uh, straightforward. Where you stand depends on where you sit. So propaganda messages coming up from those regimes are dependent on the private information those governments have that we do not, right? So what the Chinese government is saying in the state-owned media depends on what they know that we do not. Now, um, that kind of exercise has long been there in the intelligence community for years, right? We study the U.S. intel community, study the Nazi propaganda during the Second World War, Right, and then they started to watch the Soviet uh, leaders' speeches, you know, during the Cold War. But this kind of work used to be much harder because propaganda messages are not like numbers. Right, very often they are words, or uh, you know, think about it more broadly, they could be pictures, images, videos. So that has has been. We know that it's important, but it has been difficult. But in recent years, thanks to the advances in artificial intelligence research. Now we have much better tools to understand those, what we call unstructured data. Um, let me use the trade negotiations between U.S. and China as an example to illustrate how that program might possibly work. Remember back then, during a couple of years of negotiations between uh, you know, negotiators from these two countries, a sticking point, very important sticking point, was that the U.S. government was asking China to change fundamentally change the way they run the economy, right? making those structural Issues at the center of the of the negotiation, uh, whether the China would cut down on state subsidies on domestic firms, you know, abandoning the long held industrial policies, protecting intellectual property rights, what have you. Now, at some point, this uh, Wall Street was very optimistic that China was might actually make those structural changes, but what we found with the research program was very different, because for a government like China, based on historical experience. For a government like, Chi- uh, like the Chinese government to make those changes, typically it would require changing public opinions way before those policies will be implemented, because we are talking about cutting down on the state support to those domestic firms, right? So you, you probably would need to educate your, your citizens, you know, how to do uh, business in the new model under a fair protection of uh, intellectual property rights and fair competition with foreign companies but what we have picked up on last year and actually since 2 years ago was that China have been propagating has been propagating hotline policies emphasizing among other things how important it is for China to take a leadership role on the global stage so that's the opposite of what would be needed in terms of moving public opinion toward the direction of backing down on the trade demand for that reason we have been predicting very consistently last year throughout 2019, the China was not going to back down. And obviously, it didn't go that way either. So, I mean, we as researchers, we still feel pretty bad for American consumers being the victims of the trade war. But it worked out pretty well for our research program, I have to say. So that, that's just an example of how analyzing propaganda could do in terms of informing us on policy issues. It could be different things. Uh, going back to the outbreak program, right? It could be not so much as about policy intentions or what the Chinese government would do going forward, but more on how much they are hiding from the rest of the world, because that's also a function of what they know that we do not. I'm happy to talk more about the, the outbreak project if you uh, would like. Uh, this is the the project we are uh, we have under development, and the idea basically is to say whether we can also pick up some clues from birds now the key the key point is that i mean there's no shortage of numbers we can always find out you know official statistics about how many cases there are how many did die but numbers may not be as accurate as words sometimes because think about during the coronavirus outbreak when the chinese government said to the public that there were only about i don't know 300 cases But in the meantime, in the media, they were saying people should still be vigilant about staying at home, shutting down cities. Which one do you believe more, right? Of course, the words matter, carry more weight in this case than just numbers. And historically, we have a good benchmark for how to measure those words because we had been through the whole cycle of uh, outbreak for SARS back in 2003. So we have observed over time how they talked about the SARS outbreak going from the beginning to the peak and then to the end. So that gave us a very nice uh, precedent to measure the current talking points on coronavirus using the the example from 17 years ago. Uh, We don't have the complete result yet, but we are hopeful that we'll be able to launch that program pretty soon. So to our listeners, if you're interested, please stay tuned uh, to our new product
1: countries that would lend themselves to this kind of research other authoritarian regimes you that you might have thought of looking at
2: yeah so we are actively exploring the possibility of doing the same for north korea the current day russia which runs pretty much the same way as the soviet union although less oppressive to some extent and uh, and probably iran and and there are a lot of authoritarian regimes in which there are very strong uh, control of uh, media, in which case what the, what you can find in the media could reflect what the regime's uh, thinking. So that all these countries are in our mind and we are actively exploring, adding them to our product line going forward.
0: So I always like to give our guests, uh, we are coming to the end a little bit here of our segment trying to be respectful of our, all of our listeners' times. I do want to give you a moment. Right now, all of our listeners, they're very interested in state policy. That's why people come to alc across the states are interested in state policy. They're either state legislators themselves. They could just be state policy wonks that, you know, that's just something that they really care about and they appreciate. So I like to remind our, our guests, you've got your state audience right now. So what would you want those who really care about state policy and how state policy relates to international relations, what would you want them to know about your policy change index and about some of the other work you're engaged on?
2: Sure. I think we are squarely at a critical juncture in history where we are turning from primarily U.S.-led liberal international order to what might turn into a century long US-China rivalry. And I think a lot of public policy making, whether it's in the federal level or the state level, will have to change drastically to uh, adjust to the new normal. And I say this uh, not lightly because it really gets to the point, uh, in economics there's a very important distinction between what's called marginal thinking versus what's uh, inframarginal thinking. Uh, let me use uh, schooling as an example, since everybody's staying at home and many have to school their own children, homeschool their children. Now, if you think about how much you spend on education, right, how much you uh, pay, you pay for a private school versus public school, that's a matter of marginal analysis because we are talking about on the margin whether you want to spend, you know, uh, 30000 more on your children's education. But when the pandemic hit, you will have to change to homeschooling, Right. And so that change, in terms of method, is a qualitative change. It's a change in direction, which, what we, which is what we call info-marginal analysis. But then once the kids are at home, now you have to calculate how many hours you should put in every day to homeschool them, and that becomes, yet again, a marginal analysis. Now, w- when, we were, when we used to be in the uh, U.S.-led liberal international order, the thinking on trade, for example, how, how much the U.S. should engage with China... Is based on a very different assumption than what we are facing now. Because it used to be the case that free trade is a predominant ideology, which uh, people, not only people in the US, but also people in uh, China, for example, would uh, fairly enjoy. Now, but the issue, what the uh, COVID-19 pandemic highlights is that that entails severe national security risk. So, Going forward, I think U.S. policymakers should rethink how they engage with China. Now, I'm not saying that to not engage with China, because that's not the that's a uh, the wrong answer. That's a marginal analysis answer. What I think uh, policymakers should do is to change the way they engage with China. It's it's like pretty much like switching from uh, you know schools you know schooling uh, to homeschooling. But doesn't mean that you should cut down on the time you spend on your children because you still have to educate them. So trade is still important. But what uh, policymakers should pay attention to is how exactly to trade with China instead of saying, oh, now we should withdraw, we should you know, impose sanctions, and we should cut down all the ties with China because the economic cost is so large. right?" But a, a rethinking of the paradigm of engaging with China is much needed. And I think assuming the Chinese economy is being strong and the political system being resilient for uh, years to come, that uh, rethinking is much needed.
1: And on a tangentially related note, what do you think about proposals for the U.S. to withdraw funding from the World Health Organization, the WHO? Do you think that that's a smart move or does that simply create a power vacuum into which China can move?
2: So um, that's a great question, and it also gets back to the qualitative versus quantitative thinking. So withdrawing from those organizations would be as if saying we should withdraw all the trade with China. I don't think that's the right move. But the U.S. should engage with those international organizations in a totally different way with with in mind the reality now that China is imposing its influence on those organizations so it's a matter of uh, security competition or power competition the and, and the answer to that challenge should not be let's just recede from all the ground right so that that's likely not going to be an effective answer to the challenge but doing it you know running business as usual in terms of when it comes to uh, how the us engage with those organizations uh, would not be the right answer either
0: so that does bring us To the end of another episode of ALEC Across the States, I've been your host, Dan Reynolds, sitting down with Dr. Wei Feng Zong, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at Virginia's George Mason University, to discuss China's policies, how to track some of their changes with his new policy change index, and interestingly, how that new index can track China's response to COVID-19 related or rather compared to the SARS outbreak. Dr. Zong, thank you so much for calling into the podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Of course. And as always on our international relations discussions is Senior Director Carla Jones. Carla, uh, thank you so much for organizing this great conversation and for uh, calling into the podcast.
1: Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Dr. Zong.
0: And if you are interested in having your ideas featured on ALEC Across the States, do not hesitate to email me at Alec.org. Thank you. Thank you
1: for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at ALEC States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.